Let's stand and read God's word together. This first part of the text has been our text for the last uh, couple weeks. It'll be our text for a couple more weeks. And uh, we've invited everyone to work on memorizing it. So let's read the first part, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, aloud together. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became hope in heaven. And now for the rest of our text, Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As it has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? and with whom he was angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom God, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay. So we're doing this series, How to Read the Bible, right? Uh, asking the question every week, how should we read the Bible? And that's an important question because uh, Christians all over the world claim to follow the Bible, even though it's uh, we agree on so much across traditions, across geography, across time. It's uh, discomforting how much we disagree on um, other denominations, other churches, uh, even maybe within our own uh, communities, friend groups, and families. Now, how can it be that the Bible, which claims to be God's word, we can all be reading it and all saying, yeah, this is what we're following. It has such different ideas about what it says. And as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, uh, we don't have a Bible problem, but we do have a Bible reading problem. Uh, there's some things that we need to learn as people, uh, how to read the Bible. And some of the divisions in our church, in our community, uh, and, and even just the, the general difficulty, I think that maybe each one of us has with picking up our Bible, reading it, get something out of it um, regularly, testifies to the truth that we need to grow in our ability and our capacity to be good Bible readers. So how do we read the Bible? Well, done. this is week three. First two weeks, we really laid a foundation. Uh, each week, we're pulling from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, which is the big text in the scripture that tells us uh, what it means that God speaks, what is God's word. So first week, we read the Bible theologically. We learn that the Bible is a God book. It's not a me book. It's a God book. It's about God. It's from God. It's really for God. It's all, it's a God book. That's the foundation. Second, we learn that we read the Bible Christologically. We read the Bible uh, because looking for Jesus, because the Bible is all about Jesus. Not just Jesus in a vacuum, but Jesus the King. Jesus the King of our world, our life. We read the Bible toward that end. We learn that the Bible is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end. It's how we, it's how we learn about God, how we learn about Jesus. So, that's where we are thus far. And today, we continue with a new um, adverb that describes how we should read the Bible, and it's historically. We should read the Bible historically. And the big idea is that the Bible is a historical book. Now, that comes, just like all of these themes each week, straight out of Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to who? To our ancestors, the people that came before us, through the prophets, many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken by his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. You see it? The Bible is a historical book, the timeless Eternal God has spoken into history, into time and space. In the past, God spoke, but in these last days, he has spoken. The Bible is a historical book. 
So if we want to be better Bible readers, we need to learn to read the Bible as a historical book. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to read the Bible as a historical book? Um, I think maybe there's a lot of folks out there. You know, in my life, there have been a lot of folks from the church all the way to the state university right to college that claim to have the key to reading the Bible historically. Uh, what does it mean to read the Bible historically? And I think if we were all to sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil and write down your idea, what does it mean to read the Bible historically? We might see some diversity in our thoughts. Uh, maybe some of us would say that that means that we read the Bible as an account of history. This book uh, is a history book, tells us history. Uh, and maybe some of us would see that history as, as, as hard fact. This is exactly what happened. What says here in my page, in my New International Version Bible, in the English language, this is exactly what happened in history. Some of us might say, uh, yeah, it's a history book that tells history, but wouldn't quite say it tells it as exactly what happened in an exact literal sense in the NIV Bible. It's more like a um, it's more like a record of the history of religious thought. It's more like a collection of writings of the people of God as they contemplated God, learned about God, and developed in their relationship with God over time. And maybe there's some truth to both of those views. Uh, maybe not. Uh, I think we, we see both of those ideas across Christianity. The Bible is a history book. Some of us might say uh, the Bible is a product of history. That's what it means to read it historically. We need to recognize that it is a relic from another time. Uh, it's, it's like a time capsule. Uh, we open it up and we are transported to another time. And for some of us, that might be, we might have sort of positive thoughts about that. Um, it's like this portal that takes us to this other place. Some of us might have, but some might call negative thoughts about that. We might think that that makes the Bible irrelevant or antiquated. Now, lots of different ideas floating around out in the world about what it means to read the Bible as a historical book. So here's what I want to do. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to spend our time chasing down each of those ideas. Um, I, I grew up in a, uh, a, a, a stream and in a tradition within our church where um, ideas like this, questions like this, what does it mean to read the Bible as a historical book? Uh, people up front of the church would give us would give us one answer, and that was what you were supposed to believe, and no one was allowed to believe anything differently or else your thought was squashed. And... Um, that wasn't so good for me or for a lot of my friends in the long run. And I want our church to be a place where we're free to ask questions and to have ideas and explore things. So I don't want to chase down every single one of these thoughts or ideas about what it might mean for the Bible to be a historical book. Uh, I think each of these probably has strengths and weaknesses if we were to put them up on a whiteboard. What, what I want to do instead is I want to give you um, 
I want to give you three uh, points on a mental map, three uh, reflections on what it means uh, from the Bible, what it means that the Bible is a historical book. In, in other words, three things that you need to know if you want to be able to grow in your understanding of what it means that the Bible is historical. And three things that you need to know if you want to be able to grow in your practice of reading it as a historical book. Does that make sense? So three things for everyone here, no matter what you think about the Bible's historical nature. Uh, and I think all three of these things uh, hopefully point us in the direction of Jesus. Because if we've learned anything over the last two weeks, it's that this book by itself uh, this book is not what we worship. This book is not our savior. Uh, this book is not uh, the final end of everything we're doing here. Jesus is. So um, three things about the Bible as a historical book for everybody. Okay, are you ready? Number one, the Bible is a book about history. The Bible is a book about history. Okay. Charlie, that's great. Uh, Stating the obvious. What do you mean? What I mean is the Bible tells a story. It's about history. It tells a story. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors. That, we, we, could, we could translate that accurately. Once upon a time, God spoke. The author of Hebrews is telling a story here. It's the story that the Bible tells. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets many times in various ways. But in these last days, time is moving. He has spoken to us by his son, who he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And we have ancestors. We have God making the universe. And we also have the heir of all things at the very end. We have a beginning and an end. We have something called the last days. We have the past. We have, but now, this is story language. Uh, the author of Hebrews is reflecting on the scriptures as the story of history, as a history story. The Bible, as a, being a historical book, one of the things that that means that we need to know is that the Bible is a storybook. It gives an account. It gives a record of a people and of a God in relationship from beginning to end. It's not a dictionary. It's not an encyclopedia. It's a history book. It's a book about history. The Bible tells a story that begins with God's creation of heaven and earth long time ago, the universe, as it says in Hebrews 1. But it eventually narrows down following the history, the story of a single family, the Hebrew family of Abraham. That family grew into a great nation under oppression in Egypt. Um, but God loved that family, and he made promises to that family. And over time, 
after a long succession of prophets, beginning with Moses, who led the people out of slavery in Egypt and into the good land of Canaan, God interacted with these people. He spoke to these people. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. And he led them into this good land. And eventually, after some time, when they refused to listen to his voice, he expelled them from the land because they refused to continue in relationship with him. They refused to listen to his word. But the God in this history story keeps his promises, and he brought them back again, but under slightly different circumstances, so that they could await a greater word from him, and an ultimate prophet, greater than Moses, who would lead them, who would settle them in a land, and who would free them in ways that they could never, ever imagine, even greater than before. This, altogether, is what we call the Old Testament. It's a story. What we have in the Old Testament is the, the record of the history of God and the family. And then the Hebrews 1 says, but in these last days, what is last days? Well, the last days is what we would refer to as the time beginning with the New Testament. The second half, or better yet, the long ending of the story. And this is when the great prophet slash word, Jesus, the greater Moses, finally comes. He finally shows up to save the world from sin, to free the world from oppression. Like God freed the family of Abraham from Egypt. To bring them out of exile. And then to open up the family of Abraham to anybody who wants to be a part of it. By doing that, he makes the whole world the good land in which God will live with them forever. This is the story of the Bible. This is the history that the Bible tells. It's the history of the world. It's the history of the people of God. It's the history of God. It's a history book. It's a book about history. Interestingly enough, though, not just interesting, that's not, that's not a strong enough word. Gloriously, though, that's a better word. This history is not just about God and his people. It's about God, ultimately, and his person who lives for the world that he made. That person, Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about history. Next thing that we need to know if we want to grow in our understanding and practice of reading the Bible as a historical book, the Bible is about history. And next, we need to know that the Bible is from history. So if you're a note taker, you can write, the Bible is about history, underline the word about, and then right underneath it, write, the Bible is from history, and underline the word from. That's the word that changes. It's a book from history. It doesn't just tell a story. It has a story. 
It has an origin story. It comes from somewhere. It didn't just appear out of thin air. Nobody found it. Um, to make a friendly referential comparison to other traditions, nobody found it written on golden plates. Nobody had it dictated to them in a cave somewhere as it is. It, it grew out of circumstances. It, it, um, it developed over time. It has a complex, a wild and crazy origin story. I like the passage that we read earlier in the book of Habakkuk because we get a little um, window into how the Bible is made in that story. Uh, in that story, well, in the book of Habakkuk, it starts off with this prophet, this prophet in the land of Judah, about 50 years before the Babylonians come in and invade and carry the people off to exile, about 50 years before that, this prophet Habakkuk is, is praying. And he's praying, he's saying, God, if you're a righteous God, if you're good, and you're so good you can't even look on evil, why is there so much evil in the world? He's struggling with his faith. He's going through what some of us might call a deconstruction. He's wrestling with God. And in that moment, God responds to him and he says that the he says, I'm going to tell you what's going on, but you're not going to believe me. I've appointed, I've raised up the Babylonians to invade Judah. And they're going to be the ones that execute my judgment. And I'm the one that's making it happen. And Habakkuk is totally bewildered. How can God do such a thing? How can a God who only does good use evil people to accomplish his, accomplish his purposes? And this is where we started reading. Habakkuk says, you who are, are pure eyes and can look on evil, how can you do this? So Habakkuk asks God a bold question, basically summarized, who do you think you are and what are you doing? And then Habakkuk says, I'm going to climb up on a watchtower, and I'm going to wait for an answer. That's Habakkuk saying, I'm going to get in your face, and I'll look you in the face, and I dare you to answer me, God. And then God answers. And let me see if I can, I lost my bookmark, but it's here in the bulletin. God says to Habakkuk, he says, this is awesome. Verse 7, then the Lord said to me, so this is God answering Habakkuk's big question. He says, write my answer plainly on tablets so that the runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently, for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. <laughs> Habakkuk asks his big life deconstruction question for God. He gets in God's face. He waits for an answer. And God responds and he says, okay, all right, buddy, I'm going to give you an answer. But first, write it down. Write it down so that other people can read it. And Habakkuk did that. You know what happened with what he wrote down? It turned into the book of Habakkuk. He was writing down scripture. Here we see a picture of where the Bible came from. It says in 2 Peter, 
that people wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible is this collection of human beings living all across a vast period of time, hundreds and hundreds of years. Human beings who wrestled with God, they asked God questions, who had faith journeys all of their own, who were flawed people interacting with God. And at some point, God said to them, hey, write this down. And they began to write. What's interesting is when we read Habakkuk's book, we're reading God's words. But Habakkuk reads totally differently than Jeremiah, Amos, or David. That's because it's Habakkuk's style. He used his brain, his vocabulary, his writing style, he wrote as Habakkuk. And God, inspiration, that means that God guided the process to make sure Habakkuk wrote exactly what God wanted him to say. It wasn't dictated. Habakkuk didn't have an out-of-body experience and lose control of his hands and just start writing. No. He wrote out of his life experience, out of his own brain, out of his own heart. That's important. Real people, real life, real relationships with God. And God makes sure that what they write is what ultimately he wants them to say, ultimately what he wants to say. Now, why is this important? Why is it important that we see that the Bible is a book about history and we see that the Bible is from history? Well, because we need to keep those things in mind when we read it. We don't want to pick up the book of Habakkuk and read it outside of its context. When we read the words, the enemy is puffed up and his desires are not right, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. A passage that's quoted over and over again in the New Testament. A passage which was key in Martin Luther's own life, which helped spark the Reformation. The righteous will live by faith or by his faithfulness. We don't want to take that verse and remove it from Habakkuk's life. Remove it from the narrative of the story of the people of Israel, the people of Judah being unfaithful to God and the Babylonians coming in to wipe everything out and start this exile. We don't want to remove it from the fact that Habakkuk was wrestling with his faith when he wrote this. No, to understand these words, we need to understand the context and the people that surrounded the writing of these words. Are they God's words? Yeah, of course they are. Like we read earlier in the book of Hebrews where it quoted a psalm and it says that they're the words of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, they're God's words, but they're also human words. Just like Jesus was fully God, but fully human. When we read the Bible, we need to read it as a human book, which means we need to use reading tools like understanding context. So when we get a look at the historical context, that here's Habakkuk, a prophet, wrestling with his faith, He's uncertain about why God is doing what he's doing. He's uncertain about the lines between good and evil in the world. He doesn't understand. 
He's frustrated. He's climbing up on, on tall buildings and or some kind of tower in order to, to try what he can to get in God's face and say, you better answer me. When we understand this context, we can know that when he says, that when God says to Habakkuk and Habakkuk writes it down, righteous people live by faithfulness. Live by faith. We can know that what he means is that being right with God, being free from our sin, living with justice. Did you know that in Hebrew and the Greek, the words for justice and the words for righteousness are the same word? All of these things don't come from having certainty in our brains about who God is and what he's doing. They come from having trust in our hearts that God is there and we can reach out to him, we can speak to him, and he is speaking back to us. That's really important. Because when we get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans is talking about faith versus works, and he says the righteous person will live by his faith. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, somewhere along the line, somebody told me that what that means is that in order to get right with God to be saved, you have to know that you know that you know that you know. You have to be absolutely certain of the fact that Jesus died for your sins and he lives in your heart. And if you can't remember the day or the hour that you gave your life to Christ, and if you have any doubts in the fact that God raised him from the dead and that God is Lord over the universe, then you're not saved because certain Certainty is what gets us in, because the righteous person lives by faith, and faith is certainty. I learned that. I wonder if you learned that. But if we go back to where that verse came from, in the context of the biblical story, Habakkuk, what he was doing, what the words actually say, what's going on in history, we can see that the righteous person doesn't live by certainty at all. Righteous person lives by relational trust in God. Habakkuk was uncertain about God. The only thing he was certain about was the fact that he could climb the steps to some tower and get in God's face because by God's grace, God heard him. See that? Context, context, context changes everything. So reading the Bible as a historical book, knowing that it's about history and it comes from history, it changes the way we read it. Now, learning context, learning the biblical context, it takes time, doesn't it? That, which means we don't, shouldn't just have to read the Bible. We, we need to read it like we need to study it and we need to really get in and we need to do what we can if, if you can learn Hebrew or Greek or get some good tools to get into the original languages because it's historical. That's awesome. But what we also need to do is we need to just read it. Get familiar with the arc of the story. Maybe pick up a Bible that's you know, the NIV or the New Living Translation that's easy, or the message that's easier to read so you can get a bird's eye view of the narrative arc. Because getting that narrative arc into our brains 
curse. You, you see what I'm getting at here? Now, learning the context takes humility. It means that sometimes the way we, what we learned a verse meant somewhere in our life in church, our life with God, once you get into the context, you look at you know who was writing it, who they were writing it to, what was going on in their life, what was going on in the situation, we begin to see, oh, this verse doesn't mean what I learned it means at all. We have to humble ourselves. And learning to read the Bible in context is a process. We live in 2023. We don't live in the 6th century B.C., which means we're never going to master understanding Habakkuk's circumstances. We're always going to be learning. Same with every other book of the Bible. And again, remembering that certainty is not what gets us into the kingdom. Jesus is what gets us into the kingdom. So we're called to trust him, to obey him, to love him. And that means we can be in process with him. And in process with this book, which brings us to the third thing that we need to know about the Bible as a historical book. We need to know it's about history. We need to know it's from history. And then here's the last thing. Uh, the Bible is a book that makes history. It makes history. It, it tells a story, it has a story, and it shapes stories. Reading the Bible as a historical book means um, that when we go to the Bible to read it, uh, we should know that our history, our personal history, our communal history, is likely going to change because of the Bible. It, in a way, it holds historical power. It changes history. The author of Hebrews, we, we read that Hebrews 3 passage. Uh, I wanted to include that in the sermon text for today because it's a, it demonstrates I turn to it. It demonstrates what happens when we open God's word and we read it uh, with historical context in mind we see that this historical story comes to life and affects us and begins to change our lives. The author of Hebrews begins by reflecting on the history of Israel. He's talking about Moses, uh, the prophet leading people out of Egypt. He considers the context and the trajectory of that history, how Moses led the people in the desert, and then how that prefigures Christ, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the great word who leads God's people today. He's, he's locating the Old Testament story in the narrative arc of Scripture, in the history of God's people. And then he draws a timeless truth from this time-bound story. He says that Christ, a new Moses, the living word of God, is calling people, calling the readers to follow him right now. He says to the, his readers, he says, um, 
Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. He goes on to say it again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The point is, the author of Hebrews is taking this historical story, this story from history. He's reading it, referencing it contextually in historical context. But he expects it to have right now power. He expects looking back on the history of the people of God with Moses, connecting that to the history of how Jesus came as the new Moses to affect his readers right now, today, where they are, wherever they are, scattered across uh, Judea, the Roman Empire, when he wrote this. And I wonder if he knew that we would be reading it even now, that he would be speaking to us. So, do you see how the Bible is not just a historical book, but it actually transcends history in order to create new histories in each of its hearers? Now, that's important. The Bible is an antique, and we should treat it that way. But it's not antiquated. God has spoken, and we need to read this, yes, as a record of the religious experience of the people of God over time. Yes. But that does not cancel out its power to shape our experience now. Do you see it? It transcends history. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important because there are voices all around us, again, from churches and from Christian literature, podcasts, blogs, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that will tell us that the Bible, that will, that will forget the whole historical nature of the Bible. And they want to only treat it as a right now book. Removing it from its story, removing it from its context. There are other voices all around us. I remember when I took this Bible as a literature class in college. Maybe some of you took that class. Kind of like, we want to remove the Bible from its right now power. It's only a history book. But what we see in the Bible is both of those things together. And you know why that's so cool? Because that's actually the way that we're wired as human beings. Each of us lives in the right now, but each of us carries our history with us. That's pretty awesome that the Bible is the same way. Here's another reason why that's important. Because it helps us understand the power that the Bible has to change things. Now, thus far in the sermon, I have only talked about the Bible. Really, that's been the focus. So we could say, uh, you know, and this is a little bit of a secret as we wrap up, I want to tell you this. What you have heard thus far today from me actually hasn't been a sermon. It's been a lecture. And actually hasn't been a gospel sermon. It's been a teaching about the Bible. So what I want to do before we end here is I'd like to take a minute to transform all of this into a sermon and into a gospel sermon, kind of selfishly so I could say that I preached today. 
but also because that's what we're supposed to be doing here. Here's the point. Um, the Bible is awesome. Uh, it's historical. It's right now. The whole thing's awesome. But we need to know as we approach it for what it is that, um, and as we see the power that it has, that it's not Jesus. Um, the power in the Bible is not uh, inherent to itself. It has power because it's God's word. It's God's word that bears witness to the living word, Jesus Christ. So here's the gospel. Enough lecturing. Here's the gospel. And many times, in various ways, God has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets. But in these last days right now, it is spoken by his son, who he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. And his son is the radiance, the glory, the representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And he's provided purification for sins. And he sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Folks, I hope that each and every one of us becomes better Bible readers. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, each and every one of us needs Jesus, God's final word. Who cares about reading the Bible if we don't hear his living word, Jesus? So, with all of our hearts, let's look to Jesus for as it says in Hebrews 3, where does it say it? See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken in the past. Thank you that we have that in our Bible. Thank you that you speak today through your word, through the scriptures even more so from the living word, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in our ability to read scriptures so that our own histories would be changed. Not so that we could be a really good Bible church and be certain of our theology and our doctrine. We can be certain of those things all the way to our own destruction. But so that we would be May Jesus sing, Jesus hearing, Jesus loving, Jesus speaking, Jesus worshiping, Jesus experiencing church. And that our trust would be in him. Lord, I pray that we would help us to repent of making idols a certainty. 
Lord, would you help us to make the practice of trusting Jesus? Thank you that we find him in this history in the Bible. Lord, everything is for you and about you. In Christ's name, amen.